Hi, I'm Katie. I'm Nathan. And uh, we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast, a new podcast about amazing female rulers who handle their business like, whoa. Like, whoa. Hello. Hashtag slay. <laughs> um, you're tuned in to the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Ryan has graciously asked us to do this intro for him. What That's a, really nice of him. What a sweet horse. What a stand-up guy. I'm sending him a cocktail right oh, now. Oh, cheers to Ryan. Hey, cheers, here you Ryan. go. Hello. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Katie. Did you know that throughout history... Just as many women as there were men. I'm not so sure about that. Like I think so? Uh, like per capita? I'm like 95% sure uh, that there were plenty of women back okay, then. Okay, according to history books. Okay, according to history books. This is surprising. I know, I know, I know, right? And that's why we're here. Queen's Podcast wants to bring amazing women out of the history books and into real life. Like Queen Artemisia. Oh, I mean, taking it way back. Well, it is, it is a podcast about ancient Greece, isn't it? Do you know anything about this queen? I don't know. Give me, give me, a, give me a summary. Okay. Well, she was a queen in her own right in ancient Caria, 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 Turkey, Turkey. Her height and fame was in 480 BC. Nice, nice. And she fought the Persians, or for the Persians. This is me. not Sparta. No, it's not. She fought for the for the Persians and was famous for being a badass advisor to King Xerxes when women were not really warriors at the time. Mm, get the job done. Yeah, she was a key player in the Battle of Salamis. Ooh, wait, what battle? Salamis. Oh, you know what? I, I think. I think that exact battle is what Ryan's going to talk about today. Oh, well, I mean, I just like, come I on. can't wait to learn more. Let's bring it, bring it, bring it. and needles I am on. <laughs> all right, so hang tight. Ryan's going to teach you all about that. So we're Queen's Podcast. Where can they find us, Nathan? Well, they can find us at queenspodcast.lipson.com. Twitter. Twitter, Queen's underscore podcast. Facebook. Queen's Podcast. I mean, just iTunes, Google Play. You are smart people. I feel like you can... Look up Queen's Podcast. You can find us. But, <laughs> all right, I'm ready to learn all about this battle. Let's go. Yes. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 38, Behind the Wooden Walls. With the destruction of the Greek rearguard at Thermopylae, the Greeks immediately ordered their fleet to retreat to Salamis, as holding the Straits of Artemisium now no longer held any strategic purpose. And so Themistocles ordered his men to slaughter what they can of the Euboean flocks and to light fires in order to hide their departure. The Corinthians left first, while the Athenians were last. Along the way, Themistocles had tasked various Athenian ships to leave inscriptions addressed to the Ionian Greek crews of the Persian fleet on all springs of water that they might stop at in order to gather drinking water, asking them to defect to the Greek cause, or at least to hang back and not fight for the Persians. Even if this did not work, Themistocles apparently intended that Xerxes would at least begin to suspect the Ionians, thereby sowing dissension in the Persian ranks, and thus causing to keep them out of the battle. The Persians were then alerted to the withdrawal of the Greeks by a man from Histiaea, a northern Euboean coastal town, who rowed a boat to Aphetai. But they did not at first believe him, suspecting it to be some sort of a trap. And so, they sent some ships to see if this was the case. In finding that the man had spoke the truth, the whole fleet set sail for Artemisium in the morning. The Persians then sailed on to Histiaea and sacked the northern coastline of Euboea. While there, Xerxes then sent a herald, notifying the fleet of his victory at Thermopylae. And so the fleet then sailed to where his army was encamped on the Malian coastline. 
With no Greek army or navy to stop him, Xerxes was now unimpeded to continue southward with his army and navy to subdue more Greek territory. As he advanced to focus, the Thessalians were more than willing to act as his guide due to their bitter hatred of the Phokians. And so, the Persians set about ravaging and burning the twelve towns in Phokis, even plundering and putting to the torch the famous and wealthy sanctuary of Apollo at Abai. They also killed many Phokian women near Mount Parnassus, by what Herodotus describes basically as gang rape. Next, Xerxes divided his army into two and sent the main force to sweep through the Boeotian countryside, and another much smaller force to sack and pillage the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi. All of Boeotia submitted to Xerxes' army, with Alexander of Macedon doing the negotiating, and thanks to him, they were spared. Meanwhile, the other half of the Persian army was on its way to Delphi. When the Delphians became aware of this, they panicked and consulted the oracle about whether they should carry off its treasures. She told them to leave it put, and that Apollo was quite capable of protecting his own property. And so with that, the Delphians loaded their women and children into ships, and sent them across the Corinthian Gulf to Achaea, while most of the men climbed to the peaks of Parnassus and took their belongings to the Corycian cave, while some retreated to Amphissa in Locris. When the Persians arrived at the sanctuary of Athena Pronea, which was the lower sanctuary at Delphi, before one would ascend the mountains to the sanctuary of Apollo, thunderbolts out of the heavens struck down among them, and from Mount Parnassus two peaks broke away, falling down with a deafening crash. A great shout and battle cry then arose out of Athena's temple. At least this is what Herodotus records. The Persians, though, were naturally terrified. Realizing this, the fifty or so Delphians who stayed behind in the sanctuary of Apollo ran down the mountainside and killed a number of them. The Persian survivors fled straight for Boeotia. Meanwhile, the Spartans had finally mobilized their full army after the Carnea had ended, and were ready to fully commit themselves to the fight under their new king, Cleombrutus, who was the younger brother of Leonidas. He ruled the Agiad line from 480 to 479 BC, while acting as a regent to the young son of Leonidas, named Plastarchus. At this point, the Peloponnesians actually appeared willing to abandon Athens. While Xerxes was ravaging Boeotia, rather than marching north to save them, they spent their time erecting a wall across the Peloponnese and destroying the Scaronian Road, the one good road that ran through Corinth and Megara. The Scaronian Road is thought to have had precarious sections of narrow ledges high up over the sea on the face of an almost sheer cliff, which, like Thermopylae, would make it quite easy to block. If the Persians were going to continue south, the Peloponnesians wouldn't make it easy for them, while hanging their Greek allies out to dry. If this was their grand strategy, though, by just protecting themselves and keeping the Persians out of the Peloponnese, it was flawed, because they needed to have a strong enough of a fleet to prevent the Persians from transporting troops across the Saronic Gulf, so they needed Agina, Megara, and Athens, who possessed the largest portion of the ships. By this point, Xanthippus and Aristides had arrived back in Athens after being recalled from their ostracized exile. The rival politicians settled their differences with Themistocles and prepared for war. Herodotus says that it was after the Athenians learned of the Peloponnesian army's abandonment of them and their building of the Isthmus Wall that they started preparing for the evacuation of Attica. 
Some of the diehard conservative Athenians refused to evacuate the city, though. However, most finally relented when Miltiades' son, Chimon, led a group of wealthy horsemen up to the Acropolis to lay down their bridles in front of the temple, a symbolic gesture, saying that the war would be fought at sea. Then Themistocles decreed that the city should be entrusted to Athena. Aside from some temple workers, priestesses, and a few who just flat out refused to leave, the women and children were evacuated to Troezen in the Peloponnese, and the old men and possessions to Salamis and Agina, with the aid of the newly arrived fleet from Artemisium. Plutarch relates a folk tale about Xanthippus's dog, which had been left behind by his master when the Athenians embarked for the safety of the island of Salamis. The dog was so loyal that it jumped into the sea and swam after Xanthippus's boat, managing to swim across to the isle before dying of exhaustion. In Plutarch's day, there was still a place on Salamis called the Dog's Grave. All of this, at least, was what Herodotus recorded. But a discovery of an inscription at Troezen, allegedly reproducing the decree of Themistocles, tells a different story. It conflicts with Herodotus's account on two very important points. First, it authorizes the mass evacuation of Attica before the Battle of Thermopylae. Second, it orders only 100 Athenian ships to sail to Artemisium, instructing the other 100 or so to remain around Salamis and the rest of Attica. In Herodotus, the evacuation of Attica was an emergency measure after the fall of Thermopylae, in a matter of improvisation by individuals, not organized by the state. And the whole of the Athenian fleet was sent to Artemisium, with the exception of 53 triremes that joined later during the three days of fighting. If this decree is authentic, then it is clear that the Athenians had no confidence in the commitment and ability of the Spartans to hold Thermopylae, and that the retention of a hundred triremes was designed to protect Attica from an attack by a detachment of the Persian fleet, sailing around the eastern coast of Euboea, while the main Persian fleet fought at Artemisium. No consensus has been reached on its authenticity, though, but it seems to fit well with the other evidence that was given in the last episode that the Peloponnesians weren't fully committed to defending northern and central Greece, preferring instead to defend the Isthmus of Corinth, but went along with it anyway because that was the popular consensus, and they were the leaders of the Greek army. At the same time, the Athenians picked up on this nonchalant approach and made fallback plans of their own. No matter when it happened, though, at this point, the women and children of Attica were evacuated en masse to the islands of Salamis and Agina and the Peloponnesian city of Troezen and all able-bodied men were put on board the ships in the Straits of Salamis. With Boeotia firmly under Xerxes' control, as they had Medized, the Persian army continued southwards towards Attica. Two Boeotian cities in particular held the great king's ire, though, as the Persian army destroyed the abandoned cities of Thespia and Plataea as punishment for their loyalty to the Greek cause at Thermopylae and Marathon, respectively. In due time, the Persian soldiers reached Athens, where they found another empty city, except for a handful of defenders on the Acropolis, within their wooden fortifications, built according to their interpretation to the oracle. They defended the only entrance to the Acropolis for as long as they could, by rolling large boulders down at the Persians. At the same time, Persian archers fired arrows at them, from atop the hill of Ares. And so, Xerxes found himself at a standstill. But the Persians managed to find a way by scaling the steep wall on the east of the Acropolis. There was no guard posted there because the Athenians apparently didn't suspect that it was a climbable wall. 
And so the defenders were overwhelmed and must have realized at the moment before their deaths that their interpretation of the oracle was wrong. Some chose to leap to their death from the Acropolis, while others were treated to the inner sanctuary of the Temple of Athena, Polius, where they were massacred, as the Persians didn't care about committing sacrilege to Athena. That night, after the temples were looted, the Athenian Acropolis was put to the torch. The Athenians watched with horror from Salamis, as the Persians finally got their opportunity to exact revenge for the sack of Sardis that happened almost two decades earlier. There are so many difficulties in Herodotus' chronology of the events leading up to the Battle of Salamis, and there are serious doubts about the number of meetings of the Greeks' councils of war and about the reliability of the details and the portrayal of individuals' behaviors in these meetings. In particular, the first meeting of the Greek generals at Salamis, who were debating the possibility of retiring to the Isthmus before the Persians had even reached Athens, was still in session when it received the news of the fall of the Athenian Acropolis, a success that took the Persians days, possibly weeks, to accomplish. In the same way, the portrayal of the Corinthians and their general Adamantus as cowards, both in the debates in the councils of war and in the actual battle, was evidently the product of a hostile Athenian tradition that reflected a hostile anti-Corinthian tradition in Athens, much later when Herodotus was writing. In fact, the Corinthians would fight very bravely, However, although the greatest caution must be exercised in the use of Herodotus here, what does emerge clearly from his account is the debate amongst the Greeks about their naval strategy, whether to stay at Salamis or to retire to the Isthmus, where the Peloponnesian League had just completed their defensive structures across the Isthmus and wanted to dig in there instead of a naval stand at Salamis. Themistocles had already earned the cooperation of the Spartan commanders through monetary persuasion, but even they were starting to waver. It was in the first council of war at Salamis that the arguments were put forward for moving the fleet from Salamis to the Isthmus, and Herodotus says that the meeting was adjourned with a majority in favor of doing such as that. The Corinthian naval commander, Adamantus, was a strong proponent of this strategy and reasoned that if they were defeated at Salamis, they would be blocked up in the island where no help could be brought, but if defeated at the Isthmus, they could escape to their own people. This was naturally the prevailing opinion by those from the Peloponnese. The identities and the arguments of the opponents of this strategy are not given by Herodotus at this point, but the opposition presumably came from the Athenians, Agenetans, and the Megarians, all three polis who were outside of the Peloponnese. Themistocles then had a conversation with an Athenian man named Menesaphilus, who warned him that if the Greek fleet resolved to sail to the Isthmus and fight a sea battle in defense of the Peloponnese, there would no longer be a united Hellas to fight for at sea, because each man will turn to his own city, and Eurybiades would not be able to keep them together. Hellas then would be destroyed by this bad decision. He then pleaded with Themistocles to persuade Eurybiades to change his mind. And so Themistocles, who no doubt held similar feelings, immediately went to Eurybiades' ship and persuaded him to have the commanders reassemble for another conference. The moment they were all assembled, Themistocles spoke out with great urgency and put forth this argument against the Isthmus and for Salamis to be the location of sea battle with the Persians. He said, If you take on the enemy at the Isthmus, you will fight a sea battle in open waters which is to our least advantage, since our ships are heavier and fewer in number. In addition, you will lose Salamis, 
Megara, and Agina, even if we are successful. At the same time, their land army will follow their navy, and thus you yourselves will lead them to the Peloponnese and put the whole of Greece at risk. But if you will do things that I say, you will find so many advantages. First, by fighting in narrow waters with our few ships against their many, we will win a great victory if things in war turn out as expected. Second, we will keep hold of Salamis, where we have sent our children and wives. Third, the thing which you most desire, you will be fighting in defense of the Peloponnese equally by remaining here as at the Isthmus, and you will not lead the enemy to the Peloponnese if you are wise. To add force to this argument, Themistocles then reminded Eurybiades of the sacrifice that Athens had made to keep Greece safe, saying that the Peloponnesians should be ashamed if they abandoned them now. Adamantus of Corinth then lashed out at Themistocles, saying that he was a man of no city, since Athens was now burned to the ground, and because of it, he has no vote in the matter. Themistocles replied at length, and with great venom, directed against Adamantus and the Corinthians, declaring that the Athenian people were greater than theirs, and as long as they had the 180 ships of their own, none of the Hellenes could repulse them if they were to launch an assault. He then turned to Eurybiades and said that the whole outcome of this war hung on Athens's ships and threatened that if the decision went against fighting at Salamis, the Athenians would leave Greece for good and sail to Italy, leaving the Peloponnesians to their own devices on the sea against the Persian navy. And so with this, the Peloponnesians unwillingly relented. It may have been Themistocles' bribery that led Eurybiades, the naval commander-in-chief, to decide to fight at Salamis, as Herodotus believed. But it is just as likely that he, being a battle-hardened commander and drawing on his knowledge gained from fighting Artemisium, fully recognized the superior quality of Themistocles' strategy. Themistocles had devised the right strategy for dealing with the Persians. He knew that the Persian strategy was very rigid, based almost totally on the joint operation of army and navy. The campaigns of Darius in Thrace and Mardonius in Thrace and Macedon had relied upon the same strategy, and it was what Achaemenes, Xerxes' brother and admiral, implemented as well. The Persian army, having devastated Attica, would not dare advance to the Isthmus without the fleet, which would be needed to turn the Greek land position. But the Persian fleet would not dare to bypass the Greek navy, since it would expose itself either to a flank attack, or, if allowed to sail past unmolested, it would risk having its line of communication and supplies, especially water supplies, cut off by the Greek navy, a situation very similar to Artemisium. Therefore, two options presented themselves to the Persians. They could either destroy the Greek fleet by attacking with the whole of the Persian navy, or divide up the navy leaving behind one large detachment to neutralize the Greek navy and sailing with the other to the Isthmus. But since the storms and their losses during the fighting at Artemisium had substantially reduced the number of Persian ships, the option of dividing the fleet was a non-starter. The Persians, therefore, knew that their only option was to fight together. The following day, as the sun was rising, an earthquake occurred both on land and sea at which point the Greeks decided to pray to their gods. They then invoked the aid of Telamon and his son Ajax, two mythical heroes from Salamis, in their upcoming battle, and sent a ship to Agina to fetch the images of Aeochus, to bring to Salamis as well. Aeochus was the father of Telamon and Peleus, and thus was the grandfather of both of the Homeric heroes, Ajax and Achilles, respectively. 
Herodotus also reports that at this exact same time, an Athenian exile named Dicaeus and the ex-Spartan king Demaratus happened to be walking on the Thiracian plain near Eleusis, which sits right across from Salamis on the coastline. He reports that they saw a large dust of cloud and heard a loud shouting by about 30,000 people. Dicaeus said that it sounded like the Lacos cry. This was the hymn made by the initiates into the mysteries celebrated at Eleusis, the site of the famous shrine to Demeter and her daughter Persephone, and in an accompanied festival. There will be more on this in a future episode. Anyways, the entire area had been abandoned, so Demaratus took it as a cry from the gods, which he believed was an ill omen that foretold the destruction of the Persian fleet at Salamis. But he decided not to relay this to Xerxes for fear that he would lose his head. So the two men kept quiet and carried about their business. Although Herodotus allows only one or two days between the arrival of the Persian fleet, the conference of Xerxes' admirals, and their decision to fight, and the actual battle, most scholars believe that he has telescoped these events and that the time scale may have been as much as three weeks. Certainly, the Persians would not have been eager to fight in the narrows of Salamis, and the intervening time between the Persians' arrival and the battle may well be accounted for by their hopes of either tempting the Greeks out into the open waters to do battle, or of a Greek withdrawal to the Isthmus. Regardless how long everything took, after the Persian fleet arrived at Thalaron, Xerxes held his own council of war with his military leaders. He asked every single one of his commanders whether or not he should wage a naval battle, because continuing to supply and feed an army of his size meant that the war needed to end soon. Everybody agreed and urged him to initiate a sea battle, all except one, that being Artemisia, the tyrant queen of Halicarnassus, who inherited the throne after her husband had died. Her father was the former satrap, Ligdamus. She was the only female commander and was the admiral of the fleet from Caria. She disagreed with everyone else present and instead advised Xerxes to maintain patience and starve the Greeks out believing that the Greeks would scatter back to their own city in due time. She argued that they had twice proven dangerous when cornered, and offering them battle in the Straits of Salamis would be an unnecessary risk. Although Xerxes commended her foresight and considered her a worthy advisor, nevertheless, Xerxes and his chief advisor, Mardonius, sided with the majority and pressed for an attack. Xerxes was convinced that they would succeed this time, since he would be present, as he was with the army at Thermopylae and not the fleet at Artemisium. He would watch on a nearby cliffside on Mount Agalio, overlooking the straits, upon his large wooden throne. He would also be able to notice the commanders who performed particularly well and stress to them that failure wasn't an option. It is difficult to explain exactly what eventually brought about the battle, assuming that neither side simply attacked without forethought. Clearly, though, at some point just before the battle, New information began to reach Xerxes of rifts in the Greek command and that the Peloponnesians wished to evacuate from Salamis while they still could. This alleged rift amongst the Greeks may have simply been a ruse in order to lure the Persians to battle. Alternatively, this change in attitude amongst the Greeks, who had waited patiently off the coast of Salamis for at least a week while Athens was captured, may have been in response to Persian offensive maneuvers. Possibly, a Persian army had been sent to march against the Isthmus in order to test the nerve of the fleet. Either way, when Xerxes received this news, he ordered his fleet to go out on patrol off the coast of Salamis and block the southern exit. 
Then, at dusk, he ordered them to withdraw, possibly in order to tempt the Greeks into a hasty evacuation. The catalyst for the battle is described in both Herodotus and Aeschylus in his play titled The Persians, and appears to have happened thanks to Themistocles' spectacularly successful use of deception and misinformation, psychologically exploiting Xerxes' desire to finish the invasion of Greece. When Xerxes had sent his fleet to patrol off the coast of Salamis, before ultimately withdrawing, as we previously mentioned, the Peloponnesians at Salamis became unnerved and called together another assembly to debate whether to stay and fight or retreat to the Isthmus. That evening, when it became clear that Themistocles was losing the dispute and would be outvoted, he withdrew from the conference, without being noticed somehow, and under the cover of darkness, he sent a household slave of his, named Sicinus, with an urgent message to Xerxes, proclaiming that Themistocles was on the Persian side, unbeknownst to the other Greeks, and preferred that the great king's affairs prevailed, not those of the Greeks. He also told him that he needed to attack the Greeks now, while they are in disarray, and that the Peloponnesians were preparing for an evacuation that night. If he would set a trap by blocking the straits, it would all be over for the Greeks. And with that, Sicinus departed back to Salamis. In performing this deception, Themistocles was trying to bring about the exact opposite. He wanted to lure the Persian fleet into Salamis. The message also may have had a secondary purpose, namely that in the event of a Greek defeat, the Athenians would probably have received some degree of mercy from Xerxes, since Themistocles had indicated their readiness to submit. Anyways, this was exactly the kind of news that Xerxes wanted to hear, and he took the bait. Hook, line, and sinker. And so, that night, he sent out his fleet to block the straits at Salamis. He also sent around 400 troops to the small island known as Cytalia, or modern-day Lipsokutali, in the middle of the entrance of the straits, in order to kill or capture any Greeks who tried to flee, or as a result of shipwreck or grounding in the ensuing battle. Many scholars have doubted the authenticity of this story, particularly because flight by the Greeks to the Isthmus would have suited Persian strategy perfectly. Whether the story about Themistocles' message is true or not, there were sound strategic reasons why the Persians had to attack. The sailing season was coming to an end, and if the issue was not resolved, the Persian fleet and army would be forced to retire to Thessaly for winter quarters in order to have an adequate supply of grain. In this situation, Xerxes would have little to show for the year's campaign, except for the defeat of a small portion of the Greek army at Thermopylae and an indecisive outcome at Artemisium while the bulk of the Greek forces remained intact and still dangerous. Furthermore, he would have had to surrender his control of central Greece, possibly having to face a repeat of Thermopylae and Artemisium, but this time it would be against a larger and better prepared Greek force. For the Persians, a victory at Salamis before the onset of the winter gales would lay the perfect foundation for their land campaign into the Peloponnese the following year. Anyways, while all of this was happening, Themistocles had rejoined the Greek war council that was still heatedly debating their next course of action. They were almost about to pull the trigger and order an evacuation when Aristides arrived from Agina with news that the Persian fleet had moved out from where they were docked at Phaleron and were heading to the straits. The Peloponnesian commanders did not believe Aristides though until a Persian ship filled with the deserters from Tenos arrived to confirm the news. At that moment, the Peloponnesians finally accepted that they could not escape, 
and had to fight at Salamis in order to survive. There were two entrances into the straits, and separating them was the island. If the Persians went on the offensive, the Greeks would have nowhere to retreat, but Themistocles' strategy depended on this. He wanted to lure the Persians into the straits, and so we can only imagine that Themistocles was happy to hear that the Persians were walking right into his trap. Some scholars have argued that since the Peloponnesian commanders didn't seem to be shaken by this news and didn't panic at all, that they must have been in on Themistocles' ruse all along. Although Herodotus, who likes to sensationalize events, says that it was at this moment that Aristides happened to return from ostracism, it seems way more probable that he had already returned and had been sent with the ship that was ordered to fetch the sacred images of Akos from Agina, and that he was one of the ten Athenian strategoi. Anyways, the Greek navy, though, had the ability to rest and prepare properly for battle that evening, while the Persians spent the night fruitlessly at sea, searching for the alleged Greek evacuation and getting into their positions. At dawn, after a rousing speech by Themistocles, the marines boarded the ships, and the fleet sailed out to their position. The Persian fleet had arrived earlier that night and blocked off both entrances into the bay. Seeing the Greeks put out to the sea, they then rowed into the straits to attack the Greek fleet. It is not clear when, why, or how this decision was made, but it is clear that the Persians were the ones to take the battle to the Greeks by sailing into the straits. Herodotus reports that with the addition of all of the new triremes from other Greek cities, the fleet now totaled a number of 380 ships, 180 of them being Athenian. According to the Athenian playwright Aeschylus, who actually fought at Salamis, the Greek fleet numbered 310 triremes, with the difference being in the total number of Athenian ships. After a series of storms and their losses at Artemisium, the Persian fleet probably numbered around 800. Regardless, the Persians still held a significant advantage. As the Greek triremes rode out to meet the oncoming Persian fleet, the Spartans were on the right flank, the Agenetans in the dead center, and the Athenians on the left, and the other Greek contingents filled in between them. The Greek fleet probably formed into two ranks, since the straits would have been too narrow for a single line of ships. Herodotus has the Greek fleet in a line running north to south, probably with the northern flank off the coast of modern-day St. George's Islet and the southern flank off the coast of Cape Vavari, near Salamis. It seems likely that the Persians pivoted their fleet off the tip of Cape Vavari, so that from an initial east-west alignment, which blocked the exit, they came around to face the Greeks in a north-south alignment. According to Aeschylus, the Persian fleet was formed into three ranks of ships, with the powerful Phoenician fleet on the right flank, next to Mount Agelio, where Xerxes was stationed on his giant throne, the Ionian contingent on the left flank, and the other contingents in the center. Few Ionians had actually heeded Themistocles' earlier plea to either join them or fight like cowards, though. Diodorus says that the Egyptian fleet was sent to circumnavigate Salamis and block the northern exit from the straits. If Xerxes wanted to trap the Greeks completely, this maneuver would have made sense, especially if he was not expecting the allies to fight. However, Herodotus does not mention this and even seems to allude to an Egyptian presence in the main battle, leading some scholars to dismiss Diodorus' account. Herodotus recounts that according to the Athenians, as the battle began, the Corinthian commander, Adamantos, became utterly terrified, and so he ordered his ships to hoist their sails and began fleeing away from the battle through the north end of the straits. However, he says that all the other Greeks denied this happening, 
Furthermore, a fragmentary inscription of Plutarch from his On the Malice of Herodotus supports the Corinthian role in the battle, saying that they captured Persians and Medes, thus showing there are awkward holes in Herodotus's account. Once again, this slander against the Corinthians was probably a later Athenian rumor that they had spread against a future enemy. If this did in fact occur, though, one possible interpretation is that these ships had been a decoy sent to investigate the northern exit from the Straits, in case the arrival of the encircling Egyptian detachment was imminent, if indeed that also occurred. Another possibility, which is not exclusive of the former and was put forth by Plutarch, is that the departure of the Corinthians was a predetermined plan in order to trigger the Persians into the strait to begin with, because this action may have suggested that the Greek fleet was indeed disintegrating. At any rate, if they indeed did leave, the Corinthians soon returned to the battle. They wheeled around and joined the Athenian flank at tremendous speed. Anyways, as the Persians advanced though, the Greeks backed up closer to the shore, forming a U-shaped and tight-lined battle formation, with every ram pointing directly at a Persian ship. As the Persians advanced, it became clear to Xerxes that he had been conned. Even if those in the front saw the disaster coming, the Persians couldn't turn back now, because the ships behind them were flooding into the narrow strait. And so the Persians were forced to chase after them into an increasingly crowded strait, until finally the Greeks exploded out, slamming directly into the Persian ships. Herodotus reports that an Athenian named Imaenius, who was the younger brother of the playwright Aeschylus and the Marathonian hero Kynogeros, was the first to sail out and ram a Persian ship, and the rest of the Greek fleet then followed suit. The details of the rest of the battle are generally sketchy and are not well described by the ancient sources, as it is unlikely that anyone involved in the battle, other than perhaps Xerxes, had a clear idea what was happening across the width of the straits. What follows then cannot be taken definitively. Across the battle lines, as the first line of Persian ships were crashed into by the Greek fleet, they then crashed into the advancing second line of their own ships, in a sort of domino effect. During the Malie, the Persian flagship, manned by another brother of Xerxes, was rammed and sunk by the Greek left. According to Plutarch, when he tried to board a Greek ship, he was struck down by the spears from two hoplites, one of which was the aforementioned Aminius, and his body was tossed into the water. Disorganized and leaderless, the Phoenician squadron on the Persian right was pushed up against the coast, and many vessels were ran aground. As the new Persian ship sailed in, they became entangled in the mess and shattered their hulls in the narrow straits. Trying to retreat, they crashed into another wave of oncoming ships. It became overwhelmingly clear to the Persians that this was a disaster. Xerxes, sitting on his throne on Mount Agelio, witnessed the carnage. At another point, Aminius shows up again in the narrative. He happened to come across a ship captained by Artemisia, the female commander from Halicarnassus, that had warned Xerxes that this catastrophe would happen, and so he pursued after her, although he didn't know who was actually commanding the ship. Seeing the tide of the battle turning, and in order to avoid being sunk, as she was cornered by both ally and enemy ships, and thus was not able to escape, she ordered the Persian colors to be taken down, and chose to ram through a friendly Persian ship in order to get away. Due to her actions, the captain of the Athenian ship, Aminius, was duped and thought that Artemisia was in fact an ally, and so he ceased pursuing her at that point. Xerxes, 
having seen the actions of Artemisia amidst the poor performance of his other commanders, was said to have bemoaned, My men have turned into women, and my women into men. Herodotus also mentions that at one point during the battle, while some shipwrecked Phoenicians were accusing the Ionians of committing treason to Xerxes as the reason for why the Persian fleet was losing, a Samothracian ship rammed an Athenian ship, and as the Athenian ship began to sink, an Aginetan ship attacked and sunk the very same Samothracian ship. The Samothracians, who were known to be exceptional javelin throwers, threw their spears as they were sinking, killing many Aginetan marines. They then boarded the Aginetan ship and took possession of it. So seeing this and being delighted, Xerxes said that it wasn't the Ionians who were to blame, as they were fighting valiantly, but the Phoenicians, and so he ordered their heads to be cut off, so that those who proved themselves to be inferiors should never again slander their betters, as Herodotus puts it. Anyways, although the Persian ships are manned by seafaring peoples, like the Ionians, Phoenicians, and Egyptians, Many of the Persian soldiers on board drowned because they were not able to swim, being mountain folk themselves. If they somehow made it onto the shore, Greek reserves were there to cut them down. The Persian fleet at one point tried to retreat towards Phaleron, but according to Herodotus, the Aginetans ambushed them as they tried to leave the straits. The remaining Persian ships limped back to the harbor of Phaleron into the shelter of the Persian army. The Athenian general Aristides then led a detachment of local Salaminian hoplites across to the small island of Cytalia to slaughter the garrison that Xerxes had left there. By late afternoon, the battle was over. The Persians had lost around 200 ships, compared to just 40 by the Greeks, in addition to a countless number of men. If the Aginetans had medized before Marathon, as the Athenians had claimed, they made up for it in their conduct during this battle as Herodotus praises them and the Athenians extensively for their valor. After the battle, a west wind carried the wreckage to the shores of Cape Coleus in Attica. When Xerxes realized the severity of this disaster, in his anger, he turned his rage on his Phoenician captains and ordered them to be executed. The problem is that this horrified the rest of the Phoenicians. So that night, they sailed home taking with them the best of the sailors and ships in the fleet. Although Xerxes pretended that he was ready to continue fighting, he had already decided that his best chance of defeating the Greek fleet had gone by. He was far more worried that the news of this defeat would encourage the revolt of the newly conquered cities in Macedon and Thrace, and especially the Asiatic Greeks. Herodotus says that Xerxes was fearful that the Greeks back in Ionia who contemplated destroying his father's Danube bridge once before, would become emboldened by this recent Greek victory and actually pull the trigger this time and destroy his Hellespont bridge, thus trapping him in Europe. So he made plans to retreat, but because he did not want his plans to be detected by the Greeks, or his own men in fact, he began to construct a causeway from Attica to Salamis by tying together Phoenician merchant ships to serve as a sort of pontoon bridge and a wall, and began to make preparations as if he was actually preparing to wage another naval battle. Very few modern scholars actually believe Herodotus' story here, as the construction of a causeway between Salamis and Attica would have been both pointless and impossible. Mardonius, though, actually picked up on what Xerxes' real intent was, and feared that he would ultimately pay a penalty, maybe even his life, for Xerxes forfeiting his war efforts in Greece, since he was the one to convince him most rigorously to come to Greece. 
and so he advised Xerxes not to be discouraged, as only their allies on sea had been defeated, but not the Persian army on land. He then offered, should Xerxes decide to return to Persia, to continue their advance and conquer the Greeks in his name. Xerxes then thanked Mardonius and considered what he should do, even seeking out the advice of Artemisia on this matter. According to Plutarch, Artemisia had recognized the body of Xerxes' brother floating amongst the shipwrecked debris and brought the body back to him. So since she behaved boldly in battle and gave him good advice before that he refused to listen to, he was thus easily persuaded now by her counsel to retreat back to Sardis and leave the prosecution of war to Mardonius. As king, he would still gain credit for any victory that Mardonius had achieved, but at home, he would be safe from any disaster that Mardonius might suffer. She had convinced him that no matter the result at Salamis, his campaign was an ultimate success since he had met his objective, that being the destruction of the Athenian Acropolis. At this, Xerxes was delighted and thanked her for her advice. He then sent her off to take his sons back to Ephesus, while sending the rest of his navy to the Hellespont to guard the bridge. We can see here that Herodotus held a favorable opinion of Artemisia, despite her support of Persia, and he praises her decisiveness and intelligence, and emphasizes her influence on Xerxes. The next day, when the Greeks discovered that the Persian fleet was gone, they gave chase, but to no avail, as they couldn't make sight of them. They made it as far as Andros, before the commanders held a council. Themistocles proposed that they should sail to the Hellespont and destroy the bridge, but Eurybiades opposed this, pointing out that if they broke apart the bridge, they would entrap the Persians in Greece, which would force them to continue their conquest of Greece. It would be best to let them leave, and further fighting should thus be taken to Asia in their territory. This proposal was agreed to by the Peloponnesians, and thus effectively the majority of the council. The refusal of the Peloponnesians to pursue the Persian fleet to the Hellespont, although much desired by the Athenians, revealed the split between the cautious strategy of the Spartans and the adventurous one of the Athenians that would come to the fore in the next year. Anyways, Themistocles then sent Xerxes another message through his servant, Sicinus, telling him that the Greeks had already sailed to the Hellespont in order to burn his ships and totally strand him in Greece with a hungry and demoralized army, which would not be a good thing for him. But Sicinus made sure to tell Xerxes that Themistocles had stopped them, and then he sailed back to Andros. Herodotus says that Themistocles did this as another attempt to curry future favor with the Persian king should he ever need to flee Athens. This seems to be a bit of historical hindsight here, because as we will see, this is exactly what would happen, and Themistocles would seek aid from Xerxes, but that's for a future episode. Anyways, while the rest of the Greek fleet sailed back home, unbeknownst to the other commanders, Themistocles and the Athenians stayed on Andros and demanded money from the Andrians, who refused to pay. And so, they laid besiege to the city. When it fell, Andros was plundered. Themistocles did this because Athens had been ravaged and thus needed to be rebuilt, but the Athenians needed to find a way to pay for it all. The easiest solution was for them to travel to the Persian-held Greek islands and demand payment. Themistocles then sent threatening requests for money to the other Aegean islands that had Medized. Hearing what had happened to Andros, out of fear, the Caristians and the Parians relented and gave money to Themistocles. The Euboean city and those two islands are the only ones that Herodotus mentions, but it seems likely that there were others. 
Anyways, when the Athenian fleet finally arrived back at Salamis, the Greek commanders divided up the spoils and sent off victory offerings to Delphi. They then sailed to the Isthmus and cast their votes at the altar of Poseidon for who they chose exhibited the best and second best valor among them in battle. Of course, they all voted for themselves as the best, but Themistocles won the majority of the vote for second place. In response, realizing the importance of the Athenian fleet to their security, and probably seeking to massage Themistocles' growing ego, the Spartans brought Themistocles to Sparta and awarded him with a special prize. When the Spartans gave Eurybiades the prize for valor, which was an olive wreath, they also presented one to Themistocles for his wisdom and cleverness. He was then sent off to the border of Tegea with an escort of 300 Spartiate Hippes and would be the only non-Spartan to ever receive this honor. Afterwards, the fame and wisdom of Themistocles resounded throughout all of Greece. Meanwhile, Xerxes, Mardonius, and the rest of the Persian army lingered in Attica for a few days after the naval battle before retreating northward through Boeotia to winter in Thessaly. At one point, Xerxes received a herald from the Spartans at the behest of an oracle from Delphi, with the demand that they receive satisfaction for the murder of Leonidas. At this, Xerxes bursted into laughter, and then pointed to Mardonius and said, Well then, Mardonius here will give them the sort of satisfaction they deserve. With that, he sent the herald back to Sparta. Xerxes then left Mardonius with a force of 300,000, according to Herodotus, for an expedition into the Peloponnesus the next spring. Included were the immortals and other loyal Arian troops that had been handpicked by Mardonius. Xerxes then led the rest of his army northwards, back through Macedon and Thrace. The Spartan king Cleombrutus wished to follow up the Greek naval victory at Salamis with a land victory of his own. He was about to advance from the Isthmus with the aim of catching up to and attacking the retreating Persians, but as he was sacrificing on October 2nd, 480 BC, in the middle of the afternoon, there was a total eclipse of the sun. This ill omen made him desist from his plan, and they marched back to the Peloponnese. Now that he would be free of any Greek engagements, Herodotus records that it took Xerxes 45 days to reach the Hellespont, but along the way many died from hunger, as they didn't have the fleet to supply them at this time. Moreover, a plague descended upon the army, and dysentery wasted the troops along the way. What was left of his army was forced to cross the Hellespont in boats, as the bridge had been broken up by a storm. And so they crossed from Abdera to Abydos, back into Asia Minor. Xerxes arrived back at Sardis sometime in October, where he made his winter headquarters. Likewise, the Persian fleet gathered at Samos for the winter. Both the army and the fleet worked in conjunction in order to keep a close surveillance of Ionia. The Battle of Salamis marked a turning point in the Greco-Persian Wars. It was a heavy, perhaps a decisive, blow to the naval arm of Persia. While the battle did not end the Persian invasion, it effectively ensured that the Peloponnesus, and by extension Greece as an entity, was safe from conquest. Also, the Persians suffered a major blow to their prestige and morale, as well as severe material losses. As we will see next episode, Salamis started a decisive swing in the balance of power towards the Greeks, as it allowed the Greeks to go on the offensive the following year, culminating in an eventual Greek victory that severely reduced Persian power in the Aegean. Like the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae, Salamis has gained somewhat of a legendary status, 
unlike, for instance, the more decisive battles that would take place in the following year. Perhaps because of the desperate circumstances and the unlikely odds. Because of this, modern scholars have stated that Salamis is one of the most significant battles in human history, though the same is often stated of Marathon. Unlike with the sack of Miletus, Phrynichus now had a theme which he could treat without any dread of another fine. In 476 BC, four years later, he was successful this time with his Phoenici, named after the Phoenician women who formed the chorus. This drama, though not available to us to this day, celebrated the defeat of Xerxes at the Battle of Salamis four years earlier. Themistocles provided the funds as the Choregos, more on that in a future episode, and one of the objectives of the play was to remind the Athenians of his great deeds. Four years after that, in 472 BC, the Battle of Salamis also was the central event for the playwright Aeschylus in his Persians, the oldest surviving play of not only his, but anyone's that we have. He fought at Marathon and may have been an eyewitness at Salamis. In the play, at one point, when a messenger is reporting to Xerxes' mother, he claims that as the Persians approached, they heard the Greeks singing their battle hymn, or paean, and right before the two fleets collapsed on each other, a Greek shouted, Sons of the Greeks, forward! Liberate your country, liberate your children, your women, in the temples of your gods, in the graves of your ancestors. This fight is for everything. Later in the play, Aeschylus describes the scene after the battle quite vividly, saying, The sea was full of wreckage and blood. The beaches and the low rocks were covered in corpses. Every ship rode in a disorderly route, every one of the Persian fleet. The Greeks struck and chopped with fragments of oars and bits of wreckage, as though the Persians were tuny or a shoal of some other fish. Wailing and shrieking covered the sea until dark night put an end to it. I could not finish telling you of the terrible happenings, even if I were to relate them for ten days. Of one thing you can be sure, never in one day did such a multitude of men die. In his play, Aeschylus celebrated the values for which the Athenians fought, those being liberty as opposed to slavery, and responsible democratic government as opposed to capricious autocracy and monarchy. The Persians was played in Athens at the city Dionysia, eight years after Salamis, in 472 BC, with the Choregos being a young Pericles, the son of Xanthippus. Likewise, there will be more on this in a future episode. Herodotus depicts Xerxes as an impious madman who was responsible for initiating the decline of Persia. Xerxes' chief character flaw, in Herodotus's view, was hubris. Like Croesus, Xerxes imagined himself on the same level as the gods. He even dared to bridge the formidable Hellespont and whipped it for not obeying him. And so, in Herodotus' account, the gods aided the Greeks in defeating Xerxes, and at Salamis, he was thought to have earned his deserved humiliation. Militarily, it is difficult to draw many lessons from the naval battle at Salamis because of the uncertainty about what actually happened. Just like at Thermopylae, the Greeks chose their ground well, as the straits neutralized the overwhelming Persian numbers. But this time, unlike at Thermopylae, the Greeks had to rely on the Persians launching an unnecessary attack for their position to count. Since it brought about that attack, perhaps the most important military lesson is to be found in the use of deception by Themistocles to bring about the desired response from the enemy. Most importantly, though, 
A decisive Greek victory vindicated the naval strategies implemented by Themistocles. Since Themistocles' long-standing advocacy of Athenian naval power enabled the Greek fleet to fight, and the stratagem brought about the Battle of Salamis, it is probably not an exaggeration to say, as Plutarch does, that Themistocles is thought to have been the man most influential in achieving the salvation of Greece. Following Salamis, news came from the west that the tyrants of Sicily defeated the Carthaginians at Himera on the very same day. So the Greek world was buzzing with excitement. However, there still was a lot of work that needed to be done. Greece was still far from safe. Many cities had been destroyed, and although Xerxes, his fleet, and a huge chunk of the army had retreated out of Greece, the Persian threat wasn't expunged quite yet. While at Thessaly, the Mardonius-led Persian army restocked their supplies and prepared for a renewed land campaign the following spring. His forces still significantly outnumbered that of the Greeks, and he had every intent of finishing what Xerxes had started. Themistocles, for his part, used the downtime to reorganize the army and to make repairs to the ships. The Greeks may have won a naval battle on the sea, but would they be able to defeat the Persian army on land with their hoplites and ultimately drive them out of their country? Find out next time on The History of Ancient Greece, Episode 39, The Greek Counterattack. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally. Now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, The Vapors of Delphi, from his album, A Well-Tuned Lyre, The Just Intonation of Antiquity. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, 
Amazon, and Spotify.